Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. If you were to go to a uh, college or Bible school, seminary, to take courses to obtain a degree in theology, two of the classes that you would be required to take would be hermeneutics, and if you were going to be a preacher of the gospel, homiletics. Now hermeneutics is simply means biblical interpretation, both of the both the grammatical, historical interpretation, simply meaning you'd study the words and you'd study <clears throat> the, the, the history of the text, and then the practical application of it as well. Paul uh, was very much aware of the principles of interpretation. One of the first things that uh, uh, my professors told me was, if you are reading the Bible and you see a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. It's a very, very important principle because therefore, or for means because. Really, it, it means because of what I have said, then this is true. In the English Standard Version of the book of Romans, the word therefore has already occurred two times. Once in chapter 1, verse 24, where Paul speaks of God's having given mankind up to its wickedness. He said, therefore, God gave them up. And then in Romans 2, 1, where he speaks to the morally sensitive but unbelieving person and says, therefore, you have no excuse. However, I am told by those who know such things that in the Greek manuscripts, the proper and the strongest word for therefore uh, occurs for the first time in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. So even though the English Standard Version translates it for, a better translation would be therefore. The word literally means on, uh, on account of which thing. So it, it marks a, a conclusion based on all that Paul has said in the first major section of Paul's letter. Now, I know you have noted that when I started, I said there was two classes you'd take, and you thought, because I'm so old and fat, that I forgot the other one. This was not true. The other one was homiletics. Homiletics is um, uh, preaching, the art of the preparation and delivery of sermons, as Dr. John Broadus would say. Uh, but... Uh, a principle of homiletics is one of the ways that you can prepare a sermon, one of the ways you can uh, get your point across. And again, one of the first things that my preaching professor told us was this. He said, a good method is to tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them. Because repetition is a good way to learn. Paul knows that. Now, he has already uh, come a good, a good ways into his exposition or into his letter, our exposition of his letter. But from chapter 1, verse 18, where the argument began and up to this point, Paul has set out to prove one thing. And that is that the entire human race 
lies under the just condemnation of God because of its wickedness. And his argument is an all-embracing negative, which precedes the even greater positive statements that he's going to begin with in verse 21. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That is the negative principle. There's a positive we're going to talk about a little bit later. So quite simply, Paul says that no one can be saved by good works. But why? Why is it that no one can be saved by good works? If not the, the utterly immoral person, why not the virtuous pagan? Or why not you? Or why not me? And so Paul's answer, this statement that he makes in chapter 3, verse 20, takes us back to the preceding chapters and the points that he has already made. The first plank in his argument is one that we have looked at in various forms several times. And it is that far from pursuing God and trying to please Him, which is what most of us mistakenly think we're doing, the entire human race is actually trying to get away from God. They are actively running from Him as intensely and as thoroughly and as quickly as they possibly can. You remember from our previous study that Paul said that men suppress the truth about God, much of what much of which they can see in nature. They can see His eternal power, uh, His majesty in nature, not to mention what we have in the written revelation of God in the Bible. But because men do not want to serve a deity like they find in the Bible, one who is sovereign over all of His creation, one who is altogether holy, one who knows everything, one who is unchanging, men suppress the truth about that true God and they construct substitute gods to take His place. And so, Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all this godlessness and wickedness of mankind. Now, people are going to say, what about the good things that human beings do? You can't deny that people do good things, that they can be philanthropic, that they can be kind, that they can contribute to charity. Don't these things count for anything? Some, about 50 years ago, a man by the name of Mario Puzo wrote a book called The Godfather became a very popular book, a bestseller, and then a, a movie series was made from that book. It was a study of the mafia, the, the powerful crime families, basically in New York, but in other places as well, who control illegal gambling, prostitution, drug dealing, who do murder and mayhem of all kinds, criminal activity, all over America. And this, this book uh, was based upon the tremendous violence that
that was exerted by these very powerful crime families to achieve their goals. Now, what made the violence particularly shocking in some ways, that it was set against the backdrop or alongside of, of tender and otherwise noble feelings by the actions of these figures. Uh, mafia dons are often quite kindly family men. Uh, they love their wives. They love their children. They love the members of their crime family. They're, they're soldiers, if you will. They are loyal to each other. They defend each other. In fact, they are ruthless in righting a wrong that is done to one of their own. But they are still crime-oriented. And the structure and ethical code of the family is only done to enhance their own well-being at the expense of others. Now that parallels our, situa our situation uh, in respect to mankind's universal rebellion against God. We may be kind to others, we may be nice to others, but we are still in rebellion against God. We are still rebelling against His holiness, against His righteousness, against His sovereign will. And we may please others within the family, but we are rebels. We, we are constantly at war with God. So our good is actually bad because it is designed to maintain our rebellion against a sovereign God. So that, that's the first thing that, that Paul has said and that proves this positive that by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. The second reason that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law is that no one actually observes it. Uh, no one observes the law. Paul has already said that you could be justified by the law if you kept it. The problem is no one keeps it. If anyone could perfectly obey the law of God, then they would be declared righteous because that's what the righteousness of God requires. requires. That, that's why the sinlessness of Jesus Christ is so important. Only a man who had lived in perfect conformity to the law of God can be a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. But only Jesus kept the law. No one else does it. Everyone disobeys the law. And Paul has already talked about that to the Jew. He said, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? You ever stolen anything? You can nod your little head. You don't have to raise your hand. But I mean, you ever stole anything? You ever lied about anything? I mean, you ever told somebody to look nice when you knew they didn't? You know? You ever told someone, oh, that tastes good when you know it was awful? Yeah, you've done that. I've done that. Oh, see, and we look like a bunch of upstanding, respectable citizens, and really we're a bunch of thieves and liars. You see, everybody, everybody breaks the law of God. The Jew had broken the law of God. He had the Ten Commandments. The things that Paul asked about there in chapter 2 were straight from the Decalogue, from the Ten 
commandments that were given to Moses on Sinai. It's the Ten Commandments that say, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And by the way, if you read the Ten Commandments and don't understand that you've broken them all, you read them all. You, you, didn't, you didn't get them right. Read the Ten Commandments and then read uh, Jesus' words. Because if you say, well, now, I've never, I've never committed murder. You ever been angry at somebody without a cause? You ever hated someone? It's the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. And you would commit murder if you had the opportunity. If you knew you couldn't get caught, and if you knew that uh, no one would know, murder is in your heart. It's in all of our hearts. Because... We are depraved. It's the same thing with the Gentiles of Paul's day. They did not have the Old Testament, but they had a moral code. They knew it was wrong to take someone else's property. They knew it was wrong to take someone, someone else's life. They knew that, but they did not live by that code. They consistently and constantly broke it. So Paul said, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at what point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. That means that whenever we are offended at another person's actions, as we frequently are, we condemn ourselves before God. What we find blameworthy in others, we do too. Has someone been rude to you and you're offended? If so, then that action condemns you because you've been rude to others. Has, has someone been angry with you without a cause? Well, that's not fair. But you condemn yourself when you are offended because you have been angry at others without cause. Whatever standard you raise by which you approve one set of actions and disapprove of another, that very standard condemns you. Because you cannot, you do not live up to it. So no one is going to be declared righteous by observing the law because no one actually observes it. And by the way, you do remember that James said that if you break the law at one point, you've broken it all. So if you tell a lie, you've also murdered. If you bear false witness, if you are covetous, that's idolatry. That means you have other gods before you. You know, covetousness is that one sin, you know, that people don't confess. But all of us have been covetous at one time or another. So we've broken the law. The third reason why no one will be justified in God's sight by observing the law is that far from observing the law, or even trying, we're actually violating the law in every conceivable way, on every possible occasion, and are therefore actively, consistently, thoroughly, intentionally wicked. That's the meaning of those two long lists of descriptive vices that are found in Romans 1, 29 through 31, and 3, 10 through 18. 
If you didn't have those in there, someone might say, well, you know, I'm not, really, I'm not perfect, but, but I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I don't pretend that, you know, I've never, never done anything, but yeah, I might have done something. And although we are unwilling to admit it, we know that we fit into these categories. Paul said they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're worthless, faithless, ruthless, heartless. And then he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have all together become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Those verses, again, do not mean that every human being has done every bad thing possible. But it means the human race is like that. And we are members of the human race. And if the truth be known, again, the potential for every human vice is in everyone. I've told you before, some of you have probably read the book or seen the movie uh, Judgment at Nuremberg. It was about the man who prosecuted uh, rank, high-ranking Nazis after World War II at Nuremberg. And he tells a story about, about interviewing one of these men. I think it was Adolf Hess who had sent millions to their deaths in the concentration camps of Auschwitz and other places. And he said the interview shook him to his core because he expected to see a monster. And he said, I saw a man just like me. And he said, I knew that in my heart there was the possibility, given the opportunity, that I would do the same horrible things that this person had done. Given the right provocation, removing all social and legal restraints, there is enough wickedness in my heart to commit any crime, any time. We are wicked, depraved. And then third, or the fourth reason why no one will be justified in God's sight by observing the law is that God is concerned with true, actual observance. That is, the attitudes and the actions of the heart and not outward acts that appear pious but mean nothing. And the chief example of that is where Paul talks about people attempting to be justified by a ritual, by being circumcised, equivalent, perhaps, to baptism in our day. Now, circumcision was not some pagan ritual. God had commanded it. God had given this to Abraham as a mark of the covenant between God and the descendants of Abraham. It was a mark of membership 
in the family of God. It was an important requirement. So important that later on in Jewish history we find a scene in, in Exodus chapter 4 where God is going to kill Moses whom he chose to lead Israel out of Egypt because Moses apparently had not circumcised his own sons. And his wife does it and saves Moses' life. So this is, this is not some pagan ritual. This is something God commanded. This was something very important, not extra biblical. It was an important rite, just as baptism and the observance of the Lord's Supper is important today. But the error the Jews made, Paul said, was that thinking that a person could be declared righteous, justified, by doing those things. Rather than understanding that the internal reality must be there, or the external right meant nothing. If the heart was not right before God, then excising the foreskin meant nothing. If there is no internal reality of your having repented of sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then having a preacher put you under the waters of baptism means nothing. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. Baptism means that you have repented of sin, that God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to you and has imputed all of your sins to Christ. Ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper have value once a person is justified. They are valuable signs that something has occurred internally. But if nothing has really occurred, then the sign doesn't mean anything. Paul writes, you remember, in Romans chapter 2, Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you were uncircumcised. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. The circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the written code. Baptism means nothing unless there has really been an inward change, unless you have truly been born from above, unless you have repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of baptized people are going to hell because the outward ritual means nothing without the inward reality. People say, well, wait a minute. And Paul encountered this. God commanded it circumcision. Indeed he did. But he didn't say that it was a way to be justified. God commands baptism. He certainly does. But he doesn't say you're going to be saved by baptism. He says baptism is your profession of faith to the world that you have been saved. For, for thousands of years in the church, some of you are not going to believe me. But for thousands of years in the church, they had no invitation to him. 
And it didn't have it. Matter of fact, it didn't come along until the 19th century. How did a person make a public profession of faith in Christ? They came and presented themselves for baptism. Baptism. That was the way they said to the world, I am a Christian. And I am following the commands of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. It has great significance. It is very important. I have really missed it in these days that we've not been able to do it. And we're not doing it today like I really want to. But it is terribly important. It is a memorial. It is a remembrance of the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It signifies that which we have in common, hence communion. What we have in common primarily is not that we are Americans or the color of our skin or our profession or our vocation. What we have in common primarily is that we belong to Jesus Christ. We are the children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Lord's Supper celebrates that. But the Bible plainly says to eat the bread, which signifies the Lord's body, to drink the wine, which signifies his shed blood, without real faith in him, is to eat and drink condemnation to oneself. Taken by themselves, the bread and the wine are mere externals. They, they mean nothing. Unless you truly have been washed in his blood. Unless you truly have partaken of Christ by faith. So we come back to our text. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And all, all of Romans to this point is kind of encapsulated in the first part of that verse. But that's only one part of the sentence. The first part of the sentence is a definite negative statement declaring no one will be justified in God's sight by observing the law because men reject God because men run away from God because men don't actually observe the law because men put more value in symbols than the reality of what the symbol is signifying by contrast the second half of the verse is a very positive statement and it says, although the law is unable to justify anybody, all of us being sinners, it is nevertheless able to show us where we fall short of God's standard. So the law is very important. The law is holy, righteous, and good. J.B. Phillips was an Englishman who wrote a, a very lively paraphrase of the New Testament. It called, it's called the New Testament in Modern English. Some of you may have that, that translation. And because he is an Englishman, Phillips occasionally used British terms for concepts that would be foreign to us as Americans. And so sometimes, the way Phillips translates translate the verse sheds light on it for us. And I think that's true. Romans 3.20. In Great Britain, what we call a ruler 
or a yardstick is called a straight edge. That, that's true in the Fiji Islands as well, being a British colony. So when Phillips came to Romans 3.20, he wanted to show what the law does for us. Even though a law, the law is not a means by which we may be justified. So Phillips paraphrased it this way. No man can justify himself before God by perfect performance of the law's demands. Indeed, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. What is the purpose of the law? To show us how crooked we are. It's straight. We're crooks. The purpose of the law is to drive us to Jesus Christ in desperation to cry out to him, save me, save me, or I die. One commentator compared the law of God to a mirror. You look in a mirror and your face is dirty, you know you need to wash it. The law is like that. The law shows us how dirty we are, how crooked we are. With that in mind, I, I, I thought of a verse that was written by <clears throat> by an English poet by the name of Robert Herrick. He lived about the same time as William Shakespeare. And he, he draws the verse for the hymn from classical Greek mythology. Uh, you, you remember probably the labors of Hercules. Remember, uh, he had to perform some labors if he was going to, you know, to get into, uh, get up to heaven and live with his father Zeus uh, because Hercules was born of a god and a mortal. You remember the story. But one of the immense labors that Hercules had to perform was cleaning the filthy stables of King Aegeus where there were thousands of animals. And it was, of course, considered an impossible task. And you remember Hercules rerouted a couple of rivers. No problem. See, Hercules, I guess. And he ran the water through the stables, and he cleaned them out. So Herod wrote this, Lord, I confess that thou alone art able to purify this Aegean stable. By the seas, water, and the lands all soak. Yet if thy blood not wash me, there is no hope. That's it exactly. If you are putting your hope and your ability to keep the law of God or your ability to do good things, your case is hopeless. Your heart needs cleansing. And all of the good works that you could do over a thousand lifetimes would not be sufficient for you to be declared righteous in the sight of God. So where, where can you find cleansing? If your heart is like an Aegean stable, and indeed it is, where can cleansing be found? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's hand. Sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. I trust this morning that you have found cleansing where Robert Herrick 
and Lee and Calvin and thousands of others have found it. The Apostle Peter said salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Our Father and our God sanctify us 